0: Get ready for all that and more in a season about short stories, small windows into vast universes. It's season five of the Cosmic Library, available soon wherever you go for podcasts.
2: Solutions and Other Problems by Ali Brosh is nothing short of brilliant. It's impossible not to be drawn to her honesty, her humor, her empathy, and her compassion. Although hundreds of thousands of readers first discovered her through her blog, Hyperbole and a Half, and her very first book by the same name, I recently discovered her voice for the very first time when I picked up a galley of this brand new book. And I have to say that I agree with Bill Gates, who says of Allie's work, I love her approach, looking listening and describing with the observational skills of a scientist the creativity of an artist and the wit of a comedian i couldn't say it any better and please enjoy this new episode of the literary life so ali welcome to the literary life it's such a pleasure to have you here with me today um your book your new book is solutions and other problems. Uh, You are a graphic uh, memorist. Uh, But I think, you know, after I read your book, I realized it was one of the strongest memoirs that I've read this year, and I've read a lot. And um, so what I thought we would do in this discussion, is just, you know, my discussion's always a little bit freewheeling, but I wanted to talk in broad strokes first uh, for the few people, maybe the one or two people who aren't familiar with your work, I want to be familiar with your work? Um, So what Allie does is, as I said, she's a graphic memorist. So she incorporates words with images and drawings that she does herself. So the first question I have, Allie, is when and why did you decide to work in that medium? where you marry words and images?
1: so it was it was something that sort of emerged out of a, a need to like find some something other than writing to express myself like um i i watch a lot of stand-up comedy and i i really enjoy the like physical presence that a comedian is able to bring to their comedy through like facial expressions and postures and when I was trying to replicate that without actually like like I, I don't ever want to get up and like be on stage with a microphone um but when I was trying to like replicate the type of humor that stand-up comedians uh, like that, that that type of feel um I, I felt like I was very very limited by just having words and so I thought maybe I would like start drawing some pictures and it worked it helped it like Felt like it, ser- it served the same function as, like you know, a comedian interjecting a facial expression or a like you know, hunched body posture. To,
2: you know, to I never something. thought of it until just now, till you said that. It works mm. perfectly that way. It's like a little interlude that helps punctuate what it is you're writing about, in a sense.
1: Yeah, and it's it's like that, it's like faster communication that's like it, the images are capable of, like the pictures say a thousand words thing. You can like, like if you want to get the point across really, really fast, images are good. like.
2: So that, that also begs the question, so who are some of the stand-up comics that you listen to and that you admire?
1: I, very many of them. <laughs> um, so I, I actually have a list that I could find real quick. Um, but recently I have been, so let, let's see, all-time favorites um, would be Dave Chappelle. Uh, Mark Marin, uh, Nate Bargatze, Maria Bamford, Sarah Silverman. Uh, her her joke about the squirrels.
0: Yeah. I think
1: is like it. It blew me away comedically. Like just the the structure and intricacy of that joke is beautiful to me.
2: So <laughs> oh, yeah, I think it's available on YouTube. You need to someone needs to find it. I think.
1: Yeah. uh, John Mulaney is another one that I've greatly admired over the years. His, his storytelling is top notch. Um, Oh my God. I think I
2: read somewhere that you, you, you talked about one of the comedians and you said what you loved about, I think it was Dave Chappelle. You said you loved his balance between cynicism and hope.
1: Yes. Yes. That's the exact kind of like, like I, I feel like, messages of hope for me like to hit me in the right way need to be kind of like have that edge of cynicism or have that little bit of like grounding force to be like, Hey, you know, here's the way it really is. But then there's like a little kernel of, of truthful uh, hope in there. Even, and I think Dave Chappelle strikes that balance extremely well.
2: You know, I can tell you that, you know, even in your dedications and in your Introductions like like in your in for the first book that you did hyperbole and a half i just I just loved you know for Scott what now <laughs> you know, do you want I to mean, know the
1: story behind that Everybody yeah, I would it. love to know
2: the story behind that
1: so I had a friend named Scott, and we were in a a prank war, and it was a very it's kind of a weird prank war, not the usual type. it was the type of prank war where you like sneak into each other's houses and leave gifts that are like ridiculous, like the kind of gifts that friends wouldn't get each other. Like he got me a TV. <laughs> <laughs>
2: well, well, that's a <laughs> pretty went, good prank. <laughs>
1: yeah, he, he invited um, my husband, or my, my ex-husband, husband at the time, Duncan and I out to dinner and left the dinner in the middle of the dinner to be like, oh yeah, sorry guys, I have to like go leave and do this this thing, but like enjoy yourselves just to get us out of the house to like sneak into our house and put a TV in there. And just like, cause he knew, he knew that I like, am like uncomfortable with gifts. I don't like getting, getting presents. It makes me feel like weird and guilty. And so we went back and forth in this, this prank war. And my, my way of escalating the prank was to dedicate my book to him. <laughs> that,
2: <laughs> i think you won i don't think there's anything and what like millions of copies later i mean everyone is now wondering what the hell that was about that's We're ter- wondering
1: who scott is and what. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Exactly. <laughs> i love that that's a really terrific story but um so i mentioned that book which was hyperbole and a half which was which came out of an incredible blog that in the days of blogs when blogs were so big what was that like in 2012 you started your first I, blog so I very i started it in
1: 2009 2010 2009. is when it started like getting some traction uh, on like reddit it was right. about a year that i was writing before it like maybe like nine months
2: and you were writing these very personal uh things about your life and about experiences you were having uh, the way I thought about it a little bit, you know, it's sort of like Seinfeld with an edge. It's like, you know, if Seinfeld had that edge, that cynicism that you have, <laughs> I love it, it. Would, it would be that to a large extent. And, and if he was that honest as well. So you did that, and then this book came out, and then you kind of disappeared for a while, right? Yeah. You had, you had a lot of, you, you know, you had a lot of bad things happen, right? Uh, yes you know one point in the new book you said something that I really loved you said um, it's fucking mayhem out there good things are happening to bad people and bad things to good people everyone is parking irresponsibly and taking credit for everything right Mm -hmm. so you went through this period of some very bad things happening Right. And
1: nothing seemed fair. It, it made me deeply question the, the balance in the overall universe <laughs> and, well,
2: whether it, yeah. and whether it existed. <laughs> I mean, I don't know if other people had this, this feeling when they read your book. And I know that you went on a very large tour or a very wide ranging tour for hyperbole and you met people face to face. And for someone like you who's a bit more reclusive, that must have been difficult in and of itself. I would imagine
1: yeah it was I mean it was very exciting, but excitement can also be stressful, you know, and it i I feel like I get this thing like whenever I'm out talking to a bunch of people, this feeling of like being exaggeratedly aware of my own unimportance. Like what are we, what are we making a big deal out about here? (laughs) Like what, (laughs) I don't know. It just like really drives it home. But did it
2: strike you? But what did it, what did did you, what did you, what did you conclude? What was the big deal? What did you understand was happening?
1: Uh, I mean, it's it's hard to wrap my head around, you know, I think that like I, I will write things and people relate to them and then, and then, you know, we can kind of, I think people wanted to like meet me and kind of have a personal connection with, with somebody who maybe said something that they related to. And, and that was, that was a fun thing. That was a fun, you know, everybody wants to touch something in the void, right?
2: And it's. I think you're exactly, I think people identified with, because the kinds of themes that you're dealing with are universal themes that everybody has, but nobody can express in the very same way you can. That would, that would be what I would take away from it. But then what I would also say as someone who, you know, I guess I'm almost twice your age and I've got a daughter who's about your age. And it's also the kind of sense where I would just want to put my arm around you and go, it's okay, Allie. It'll be okay. Really, it's okay. You know, I mean, that is the sense that I had reading your book as well. I mean, I tapped into a younger version of me, but at the same time, I felt like, you know, you were so open and so vulnerable that um, I both appreciated it and worried about it a little bit too. Um, And with hyperbole, when that was finished, you then I think, you know, you had some really bad things happen. You know, you have a sister that you were very close to who committed suicide and it just seemed to go, it just seemed to go South after that.
1: Yeah. Everything kind of, kind of spiraled and it was, you know, it's in trying to deal with feelings other things happened, you know. I, my uh, my husband at the time, Duncan, and I got divorced, and um, you know, more, more depression was thrown in there. Medical issues. It was a it was a weird time, and yeah, it, I think that was really what, when it started to like feel like, oh, maybe maybe there's no overarching structure to fairness in the universe, and like if all of these things are happening end to end, it just seemed too like statistically improbable. <laughs>
2: So was solutions and other problems just that? Was it part of the solution, but revisiting it brought other problems as well up to the surface?
1: So yeah, I think that it's solutions and other problems is sort of my attempt to investigate that feeling of helplessness and gain, you know, my, my journey to figure out what, what my abilities are to influence my situation you know like what what can i do um if yeah i I don't have the ability to control what the universe is doing in in like a grand way so like what are the things that i can that i can do to impact the way that this experience feels to me and you know so there's there's quite a bit of unpacking that about um you know just either coping mechanisms I've learned or examining the kinds of questions I was asking at the time, you know, trying to figure out, uh, there's a lot of mortality in there. I think that that was a big theme. Um,
2: yeah, no, there is mortality and, you know, uh, God, it goes, it runs the gamut for so many different things. You, 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 you're, you're, you're you're the, one of the more self aware people that i know self conscious people that I know in a positive sense, meaning that you're you're conscious of your, you're conscious of yourself and has that always been a situation with you were were you always that kind of kid when you were young who really like took it all in and you had that tape going in your head that was constantly playing back to yourself
1: see i mean I think that I've always been kind of like I've had a a lot of like questions and stuff. I I distinctly remember, like I, I don't know if this was the actual first moment, but I remember a very, very stark moment of like becoming self conscious in that like ego way where you're like, Oh, this is what I am and I feel weird about it. Um, I I think I was like nine or ten and we had just my mom and I had just gone to um the like local department store to go like clothes shopping. I was, I was getting taller, so I needed new pants. Um, and I saw these, uh, these like really aggressive cargo shorts on one of the mannequins. (laughs) I was like that, that's what I want. I want those because it looked really cool on the mannequin. (laughs) And, uh, and I remember putting these things on for the first time and being like, Oh man, this is not the experience I was (laughs) I was thinking it was going to be, and it it felt, it went from, in this one little crystal moment, went from feeling like looking out at the world to like, here I am, and I'm weird, and I have these shorts, and (laughs) (laughs) what am I going to (laughs) do?
2: So from there, it never stopped.
1: Yeah, um, and it's just been different iterations of trying to figure out how to reconcile you know what this thing is with <laughs> with what all this other stuff is
2: well and it's very much the world of kind of stand up comedy i mean if you look at the if you look at if you look at what a stand up comedian is and what they do that is a lot of what they do they explore their inside you know they explore their inner world and they try to i guess they try to use some sort of magical thinking to kind of understand it in some way is there a little bit of that in terms of what you're doing?
1: Oh, definitely. I think that there's like, it, humor has been an especially important coping mechanism for me. Um, when things start to feel like bullshit, it it makes me feel powerful to like turn that into something that I can, you know, turn it into a joke that I feel like I'm laughing with it instead of it laughing at me. <laughs>
2: Oh, you totally are did you come from a family where your parents uh, did was it a was it were they humorous did they have senses of humor was it <laughs> I mean i think
1: we weren't I, I don't know if anybody would call us an especially funny family i, right. I very much had to learn how to be funny I, I i don't i wouldn't consider myself naturally a funny person right um it was a conscious effort like i i would take Stand-up transcripts, like I have on my computer, all of these transcripts where I've bro- broken down like the beats of a joke and tried to figure out in like sort of a scientific way how to how to create humor. So I came at it from a very like stilted scientific um, angle, <laughs> and that's <laughs> that's no, how we ended it, up here.
2: But it but it works so well. I mean, I don't I can't remember a book that that made me. You know, you know, made me gasp, you know, could have made me cry, and at the same time made me laugh out loud. I mean, it all happened, and it happens within just a few pages and And the cartoons, I mean there's so many poignant moments. I mean the 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 um, section that you have in there, I'm just sort of going I'm kind of going, all free-associating, but the thing about we balloons, all are. <laughs> the balloons, the balloons piece that you wrote. I mean, there was something so so poetic about it. You know, the idea of balloons traveling. That as fast so
1: happy to hear. <laughs> oh, God,
2: it was really, I mean, I could, I could, you know, one of my favorite books as a kid was The Red Balloon. <laughs> when I, I, was I, I
1: don't know. I'm unfamiliar.
2: Oh, you don't know it? Oh, I don't know. Indeed. You need to get it. Get The Red Balloon. The Red Balloon. And it was, it started as a movie. So there's a movie called The Red Balloon. It was a French movie. And it's about a kid who is, you know, traveling through the streets of Paris looking for the, it's in black and white, but the balloon is in red. And Have
1: I seen that? I feel like now that you've yeah. got the pictures.
2: Oh, you're going to love it. And then, and then the book, the book itself, the kid's book, was basically stills from the movie telling the story. It was.
1: Yeah, that sounds, that sounds amazing.
2: I mean, I'm talking about, you know, 1960. <laughs> That's when I was just in, in, enamored with it. And it's still, you know, the bookseller. I've seen the, that
1: it crept in there and yeah.
2: I, <laughs> no no, but it was just but it reminded me of that and this beauty of these balloons going. I mean, so you have that kind of elegiac sense, and at the same time you have this. Is that
1: how you pronounce that? I've I never heard that word pronounced. I
2: think so. Yeah, I think that's, that's amazing.
1: I I would have said elegiac. I think I well, I, I
2: believe it's I'm elegiac. much more of a
1: reader than a talker.
2: No, but <laughs> it's it's very song like, it's very you know, very prayer-like. Say it
1: again,
2: ele- elegiac.
1: Elegiac. Elegiac. Yeah. Awesome. <laughs>
2: <Yeah>. <laughs> well, it it was, and it and at the same time, you have the thing about the dog bringing in the horse shit, you know, into the house. <laughs> you know, you you go from 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 the elegiac to the very to the very concrete. Yet at the same time, there's an amazing point in that, and. And then the way you – spring I don't want to really give it away. I don't want to give the book away because you have to experience mm-hmm. it for the way it is. Because each chapter can stand on its own, but when you take it as a whole, it takes your breath away. Like, you know, reading about your sister after reading about everything else and the way you have it kind of buried in there – not buried, but the way you have it worked yeah, in there. Yeah,
1: everything a little bit later. Yeah,
2: there. I mean, coming later on, it was like <gasps> – and then the bit about your own illness as well, which – you know it 's kind of remarkable too i mean i i went my my dad just went through all kinds of weird stuff. he died about a year ago but but I know what that feels like to to discover and the, the sense of not knowing and the sense of your you know i mean everybody can relate to this stuff. I saw your interview once one interview with Mark Marin that you did, and you know here's a guy. oh he 's phenomenal and he could relate to it too, and you know he 's someone who 's a bit more my age than your age and yet. You know all of us are able to relate to everything you say, so the sense of humanity in it is really timeless and
1: uh, yeah, I think there's things that everybody experiences you know regardless of anything else there's just a you know there there's a common denominator to people
2: <laughs> yeah no well that's I think the point of it is that that sense of humanity is really there, and it it's universal to a large large extent as well. Um, I know I got a little off the topic that we were going at. It made, but it made
1: me very happy to hear that, that, the through line of the, of the story works. That's something that I felt very, uh, that I questioned very much whether um, it would work out. Um, no,
2: and then the way you end it as well, in terms of your own, how do, why don't you, I'm explaining your book to you. you I, I, I'm to it? loving
1: it, by the way. <laughs> no, no, I've, I it, really, it,
2: I really got into it. So talk about- You know, you talk, about, talk
1: about how, like an I, ideal audience, like the way you hope people are going to take it. It feels like you're taking it that way. So I'm, I'm, I'm enjoying this, uh, these interpretations very much. You know, it's really
2: funny. I taught I high school- I taught high school English for a couple of years, and I remember, before I owned the bookstore, and I remember, I really got into it. I wasn't that much older than the kids I was teaching, but they were not college bound necessarily, and they hadn't really, you know, they hadn't been taught poetry much. And I was teaching some poem, and I was really getting into it, and talking about metaphor and all that, and all of a sudden I heard a kid in the back go, hey, he's really getting into it. And then I realized that was my job, was to show them that you could get into poetry. And so that's what I felt like I with your book. You know, <laughs> hey, he's really got he really got into it. What what happened there?
1: I but love talk,
2: poetry. Talk about the way you ended this book, particularly, about your own sense of discovery of yourself and what it meant to you in the end. Let me um I don't remember the the chap the last chapter is called Friend, right? Yeah, yeah. What did that mean?
1: So so what I saw sort of as my you know, earlier I was talking about this book being sort of about my journey to discover what I can do to contribute to like the course of my fate, um, I suppose. And a big turning point for me was realizing that I could sort of befriend myself, that I, I could, you know, in a time where I was feeling very lonely and isolated and like, I, I didn't have um, anybody to really, relate to or anybody who like felt like that caring friend type character in my life. Um, I sort of got the idea, well, maybe I could try to do it for, for myself, like try to learn how to like, like what do I need? What are my emotional needs um, in a friend? Like what do I need from, from this type of interaction? And maybe could I try to figure out how to do a crude version of that just within my own head. And it was, it's been a very long journey that I'm still on. Um,
2: and so it's working out. It's working out. Oh, out. I,
1: I definitely. It feels like yeah. it, it. was a, a huge, huge leap in the direction that I wanted to go in terms of like feeling okay as a as a creature in the universe. um You know, there are times where I I feel you know in the depths of that like depressive hopelessness, or you're just like lying awake at night, kind of crying quietly. Um, and I feel like I. Have something there in those moments that I didn't used to have. Like,
2: a, is there anything that you could point to for other people listening who are suffering from that depression that was able to get you off the bed or out of the room or that sort of thing? Was well, there any help that you were able to get?
1: So specifically, with like on the topic of being your own friend. Um, it, it was more of a like idea for me that like my own approval matters or my own like that, that, I, that I'm a, a valid part of the conversations I'm trying to have. So if I say, say I want an, the experience of like somebody appreciating how hard it was for me to like walk out to the mailbox on a certain day, um, because that's not the type of that's not the type of struggle that like I think a lot of people, no have for me it is genuinely like a horrifically difficult process to be are, i have to go to the mailbox like i have to get all the supplies necessary to write this check and put a stamp on this envelope and and walk actually out to the mailbox past people mm-hmm. um it's it's like a a block about from where i live to my mailbox um but if i like i am somebody who has the capacity to appreciate what that struggle feels like um and so i can give myself the approval that i am seeking for that i if i take the time to be like you know what good job you like good good job to me high five you did it like, that's constant, a,
2: you're constantly honoring yourself and giving your giving yourself the ability to like yourself
1: as well. yeah like like it's i'm sort of teaching myself giving it i I sort of see it like um, training an animal in a way where you're giving positive feedback for the types of behaviors that you're wanting to encourage. And so if I'm trying to be more productive, I'll give myself a little like recognition for that. And I don't know if it helps the depression necessarily. Like it, it certainly takes the self-loathing more out of it. It, 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 softens that component significantly to like focus on appreciating the effort
2: (laughs) no well getting getting into that state where you're able to see you know what's real and what's fantasy and what is in your mind and what is actually who you actually are that's a very difficult process for lots of people you know and and that's (laughs)
1: well
2: it's paralyzing if you're not able to do that You know, I mean,
1: that that becomes
2: the essence of what's paralyzing. It's, it's not an easy thing. Um,
1: Because it feels like you can't do anything about it. Like that there's nothing, that there's, you know, all these confusing feelings and self-hatred and all this stuff. It's so complex and coming from every direction in your head that it feels like there's nothing you can actually do about it.
2: Yeah. Yeah, no, no, it's true. And you also, what's so interesting, too, to me, I mean, you write about it, but I'm sure that if you hadn't written about it, on the surface, nobody would understand the struggle that you're really going under, where you're going through, really. A lot of these struggles are, 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 are internal.
1: Yeah. Um, I think of it like invisible, invisible struggles, invisible victories. I, yeah. I have lots of notes that have the the term invisible struggles in them. <laughs>
2: But, you know, you deal with it with such humor and it's so winning that, you know, that that is the overarching feeling that you should walk to that mailbox with every day that you are making people happy and you are you are doing something that is so necessary and so needed that. That should get you to that mailbox, if nothing else does. (laughs) I really think that.
1: In a weird way, it it sort of does. Like there's a feeling of, you know, when when you're a writer, even like your deepest misery kind of feels like it has value. It feels like you've like broken the system because you can, you know, okay, well, even if this really sucks, I can use it as material maybe, or like, like use it later as like a roadmap to be like, hey, you know, if, if you guys have maybe ever had this feeling, this is what it was like for me. And I don't
2: know. You're turning you're turning your you're turning it into art. I mean I think that's what art is to a large extent anyway. You are basically morphing your own feelings into art. And as a writer, as an illustrator I mean, it's the highest thing you can do. So you also have a thing for animals, clearly. There's a a quote in the book that says, and I love this quote, the human brain isn't accustomed to navigating a world where it's hard to tell the difference between objects and animals. (laughs) I really, really like that. And you choose to identify yourself as an animal as well. You're you're googly-eyed and... um, it's a it's a rabbit, right? You're a rabbit. Is that it's, what it it's is? A, it's kind of, kind a of, kind of like a like rabbit. An
1: amalgamation of right. rabbits, definitely in there. Um, so it would be like a
2: rabbit and a frog and yes,
1: a, your rabbit, frog, lizard, uh, like kind of a a mouse sometimes with like the reachy arms. Um,
2: it's got the long ears, and it's mm-hmm. and you, you're always dressed in like button down pajamas, which
1: yeah, uh, yeah.
2: <laughs> with feet pajamas with,
1: with, with footy pajamas yep
2: <laughs> okay. um so, and, but animals mean a lot too so are they dogs or cats which uh
1: so currently i have i have a cat um his name is squirrel i i i don't know where i fall in the cat's dogs debate i i think it can be both i like both cats and dogs um have had them both at various times um but currently i just have just have my little guy squirrel,
2: and then you also have a very interesting relationship with kids too. Yes, <laughs> I, I mean I love. I mean, was now you have to tell me the truth. So the the scene with that little girl. Yes. That that is keep keeps inviting you up to her room, right? Mm-hmm. Show and you you kind of blow her off a few times. <laughs> you kind of go into what happens there, but then you finally decide after being in the woods. For, were you tripping in the woods? What was happening in the I woods? Was
1: tripping, it was uh, mushrooms. You actually uh, mushrooms, edible like weed, it. edibles and Benadryl. Um, I I just I said drugs, but right. just to be like I, I don't know I, I didn't want to give. The impression that this, like that, there was a recipe for this type of experience. Right, right, right. Um, I, I, I don't know what, like, how responsible the amount and mix of drugs <laughs> I took was, <laughs> so I didn't want to, you know, we'll put that out there. But yeah, it was a uh, mushrooms, weed, and Benadryl. <laughs> All
2: right. So, so just to backtrack a little bit. So, you wrote your book. You kind of disappeared you didn 't disappear, but for six, you were kind of reclusive for six years or so and there was I remember somewhere somebody in the bookstore told me when I told him that I was going to be talking to you said that there was talk that you might have had the book come out earlier than you did yeah, right? there, yeah. Was, there was some discovery some some talk about you doing the book earlier i think
1: yeah the the plan was to publish it in two thousand and fifteen um and I had, I was you know significant of the way to that goal at at the point it became time to do that, and I didn't like the material. Um, I, I ended up changing my mind about about publishing the book as it was in that at that time, um, and going back and just totally re- reworking it. I think maybe three or four of the the chapters that were in that original version of it made it into the final product. Um, they you know. Di- the material got reworked into into a different format, but it it changed so significantly <laughs> that it would be unrecognizable um, if people knew. So where you, I went, you kind of went
2: you kind of went back to the drawing board for. Yes, and yes, I, and I very much
1: needed character. to. I think.
2: Do you work with an editor particularly?
0: Is oh yes, yes.
1: Um, my not. Not necessarily during the writing process. My my editor and my agent actually um, flew out to my apartment in um, in Denver at the time to to kind of help me go through material, um, which was a well above and beyond the call of duty <laughs> for <laughs> for their their job descriptions. Um. So we we have these isolated periods where we get together. You know, like after I finish a manuscript, we go into the editing process, and then there was this this time where they kind of. Help me structure the chaos that I was working with and um but usually I'm just kind of writing within my own head because I I don't know that there's this like really really vulnerable stage of creativity for me where it feels like oh man this is so dumb like the things I'm saying are so so dumb I, I'm not describing this eloquently at all and I need to feel like nobody can see me while I'm in that stage because it, otherwise I'm like too defensive.
2: <laughs> right, right, and, right, Wow. So it, um, it's really, it's really very, it, the, the, what came out of all of that is something very brilliant and I can't thank you enough for it. Um, would you read a little bit Absolutely. Ross, Um, this I believe is from the beginning of the book. It's called Bucket. Yes, bucket, and, and since,
1: then I could also read balloon if you're. You mentioned balloon. Well, I
2: would love you to read balloon too. That would be great. Um,
1: yeah. So let's let me actually.
2: And I have, have to just remind everybody: this is a podcast, so you're not going to be able to see. Yeah, there there uh, are drawings. The beautiful drawings, yeah. but uh, Allie might, if it really makes sense, she'll explain to you what the drawing might be, if it adds to the story.
1: Yeah. So so the introduction is called balloon, and. Uh, it only has a couple pictures in it, so it'll be easier to read um, in podcast format. Um, I saw a balloon going 90 miles per hour. It was tied to a truck, so there was an explanation for it, but I don't know. I guess you still just never expect to see a balloon going that fast. Balloons aren't designed for that, they aren't aerodynamic enough. This one was wobbling all around in spastic little circles, making a sound like woo, 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 woo. <laughs> it seemed genuinely out of control. I was laughing so hard, I had to pull over. I feel just like that balloon.
2: (laughs) That's great, that's really great.
1: (laughs) And then uh, chapter one is called Bucket. Um, The first time I can remember feeling truly powerless, I was three and I was trapped sideways in a bucket in the garage. The bucket belonged to my dad. He used it for washing the car. I don't remember exactly how or why this started, but through some contortion of childhood logic, I decided that I needed to get my entire body into the bucket. The bucket had other plans. Maybe I had something to prove. Maybe there was a compelling reason to need to be entirely inside the bucket that I don't remember, but I couldn't let it go. The fact that I couldn't fit my whole body into the bucket infuriated me. And there's a bunch of pictures of me trying to fit myself into the bucket. Um. Initially, attempts were confined to car washing days. Slowly though, I sought out opportunities to make extracurricular assaults. I'd sneak into the garage by myself to try out different configurations. And then there's more bucket getting into configurations. Uh, And that's how I ended up alone in the garage, trapped in the bucket. When both my shoulders finally dropped below the bucket's rim, I felt only the briefest flash of triumph before the sensation of being trapped kicked in. I had done it. My entire body was in the bucket except now the only thing I wanted was to not be in there anymore. No amount of thrashing could free me, but it did make the bucket tip tip over. And suddenly there I was, sideways, four limbs deep deep in a plastic car wash bucket, only three years old and already doomed to spend my life scooting around like the world's saddest upside-down hermit crab. (laughs) This is not what I'd been trying to accomplish. I didn't even realize it was possible. That's the scary thing about decisions. You don't know what they are when you're making them. Um, And then there's a Kind of a long sequence where I'm talking to a a genie type character about about this thing, and we 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 see what I'm talking about in the illustrations. It's gonna. Or do I need to read that part? I don't know. I'm gonna I'm gonna keep keep reading the text. Uh, fortunately, it wasn't permanent. I was rescued when my parents accidentally walked close enough to the garage to detect screening and the bucket was re- relocated to a high shelf to prevent me from interacting with it which wasn't enough. The incident had only strengthened the drive to exert my will upon the bucket. I wouldn't be content with anything less than total domination now. A bucket shouldn't be able to stop a person and I was willing to do whatever had to happen to prove it. And then there are a bunch of examples of me doing whatever had to happen to improve it or to to prove it, including climbing up onto the shelf and getting into the bucket on top of the shelf being in a utility closet in the bucket. Everywhere my parents were hiding the bucket, I would find the bucket and insert myself into the bucket. Um, And then there's a picture of my mom and dad. My dad is holding the bucket, my mom is holding me, and they're trying to pry me apart from the bucket. Um, And then the last line is, the only thing worse than getting trapped in the same bucket 19 times is surrender.
2: (laughs) That's a great story, it's a great, and perseverance is what your life is all about really. Um, yeah
1: he's the only thing you can do is keep trying right that's the only
2: (laughs) so so I read that so what happened to me is I read your book in anticipation of us speaking last week and then you had an event or something we had to reschedule this so um, I read it again and um, knowing that we were going to speak on Monday which is today and I went out two days ago And I had to run an errand. So I got in my car, I turned it on, and I immediately I forgot that I didn't bring my mask with me. So I jumped out of the car to go into my house to get my mask. And I guess I didn't put my car in park. Oh no. The car started moving. (laughs) And it was heading right for my neighbor's car across his grass. Oh my god. So I ran to jump into the car and i think i touched the brake it slowed it down a little bit and then i fell back under the car
1: oh my god
2: and then the car hit my neighbor's car with my leg trapped under my under the wheel (laughs) of my car that just happened two days ago
1: oh my god are you okay (laughs)
2: yeah no i'm perfectly fine and and it's perfect because it happened on the grass it hit my knee but not the top of my knee it was like the flukiest thing and I was okay. But the, I have to tell you, the first thing that came into my life <laughs> mind was, I'm trapped in a bucket.
1: <laughs> it's scary for, being trapped, was, right? When you I realize, never the, been, oh, I'm actually trapped.
2: <laughs> I had never been trapped in my life. And it was, for 10, for 10 minutes, I'm screaming like a madman on the grass, and nobody's hearing me. And then finally somebody comes and, and move the car off my leg. But that sense of being trapped, I immediately went to Ali Brosh. <laughs> that's where i went and i don't know if i would have had anything to relate it to if i hadn't read your book just days before so you know I, i'm wondering you would have made something really great of it i'm sure i'm sure you would have but but really the you know it it shows you what you write about which is the precarious nature of what we're doing of what we all who we're all about and you know what we're all about and there's a kind of precariousness that, um, that we both love and we're and, frightened of, too.
1: And also the instinct, man, to like actually go put yourself in danger to stop your car and to protect yeah. your neighbor's car. That's heroic.
2: Well, you know, <laughs> was, you know what else went through my mind? I, this I have to admit. My neighbor, fortunately, is not a Trump supporter. And mm. he's got a really wonderful anti-Trump sign and it's like an unusual sign that nobody else has. And the car was going to demolish that. And so you're protecting instinct, the message. I was protecting <laughs> the anti-Trump sign as well.
1: <laughs> you're laying your <laughs> life and leg on the line <laughs> to yeah, protect I, the know, from message. We, message. I love all, it.
2: We, we all surprise ourselves somehow. You
1: know, or <laughs> but that's that's the most heroic thing, right? To to put yourself in the in the str- you know, regardless of how much you are able to impact the situation, right. you're going to try. You got to try. It's <laughs>
2: you got to try, you know. And
1: did it protect the Trump sign? What's that? Did it protect yes, the Trump yes. sign? Yes, yes. A it little w- bit, maybe went, just a little bit. It went bit.
2: around it. It went around <laughs> the Trump sign. <laughs> you know, years ago, I used to, I read something somewhere it. where it says that unless you take risks, you can never grow. You know, you can never grow. Yeah. Because if you take the risk, you can fail, and then you've learned something, and you grow from that. But if you're just in stasis, nothing really happens. You know, you just tend to fall backward, more or less. But, yeah,
1: yeah. You can so at least maintain equilibrium if you, you know, it's like treading water. If you're so trying, you're, you might not be making progress, but... <laughs>
2: and you've been growing, and you're moving, and you're back in Bend, Oregon, right? And yes. you're remarried, right? Yes. So... I hope you escaped all the fires and they weren't too close or anything like that.
1: I mean, the air quality did get a little scary there for a little bit, but it, you know, I, I, I think I'm fine. Maybe we'll see the effects show up much later in, in my life, but it's not. A, how, not a how are you
2: doing with the pandemic? How is that, you know, affecting the, the bringing of a book out into the world and just also your own life.
1: Um, so the, I, I'm naturally reclusive. So it didn't really like impact me personally in the ways that I think it's impacting, um, you know, most of humanity currently that people are experiencing this isolation that, you know, I, I, I remember what it was like the first time I, you know, hadn't seen another human being in, you know, X amount of days. And, and so I, I think that there if anything it's impacting that like feeling of empathy and like wanting the feeling like i want to care for people that are going through this because it was a very very difficult time and i can see how like scared everybody feels by like the way the discord like the way the tone of internet forums and commentary has changed since i was last um, in that in that arena you know just seeing how much more gentle people are with each other um, it might not seem you know the internet is always a very harsh place if you are in the looking in the right spots but it is significantly more gentle than it was than it
2: was oh wow it was, oh, wow. It,
1: was it, it it i i was shocked by how it, it seems like everybody is kind of, you know, we've been going through this horrific experience in so many different ways with, like, just, like, politically and with the, you know, with this pandemic and with just the way the world is going. And I think everybody, it's it's been a sobering experience for everybody, and that is very apparent when you look at how people are interacting with each other. And I think that, that I don't know, it just, it really struck me as...
2: Oh well, that's heartening. We've gone
1: through something, and uh, and I I think that we're, you know, it it makes me feel hopeful too. How, you know, how people have been responding—that like we're responding to it by becoming a little bit more gentle and understanding. um, In some ways, you know, there's obviously like that. That isn't present everywhere, but it's but it is present.
2: I uh, let me let me ask you a couple of last questions. One is. I, I I just want to get to know you a little better, and I know I know that you like world building games, right? Are you yes, in, yes, you're involved in a number of them, right? You play those online, and
1: so we're, I, I I do more. My husband plays most of the world builders, um, and I I'll watch him play sometimes. He plays he plays a lot of Civ, plays a lot of uh, Cities Skylines. He used to play that one, mm-hmm. um, and uh, what is it? Planet Zoo. Um that that is that what you mean by world builder? Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um and is there, I, I'm
1: into the, the like strategy collectible card games like Hearthstone and Magic the Gathering, but I, I do have a, a deep appreciation for the world builders.
2: And is there music that you listen to that you particularly like as well oh, I, I
1: yes, all all the time. Um
2: what, what kind of music do you listen to?
1: So my my tastes kind of vary. I my favorite artist recently has been um, he describes himself as orchestral dubstep wow
0: um
1: it's it's like he started out as a, a as a composer um and then moved into the the world of electronic music and creates these like amazing arrangements of like like they're very some of the songs are very intense you know how how dubstep can be sure,
2: sure.
1: um i i really like bass i think that's like the common denominator to all the mm. music i like i like what's that like his,
2: what's his name
1: uh, Arcasia, I I don't I actually have no idea where what his he's there's very little information about this person. But he
2: goes by Arcasia.
1: Arcasia, not not Acacia, because Arke- that that's a it's hard to actually find. <laughs> um, but he's a, he's a French a French a DJ producer. I don't know what you would call. Um, but I, I think it's absolutely brilliant. Um, and so a, a lot of a lot of electronic music. I I can't. When I'm writing and when I'm like penning the the text and drawings, I can't have words yeah. um, in the headphones, so I have to find just wordless wordless music to listen to, and so it's been a lot of Arcadia, Tycho, um, another Blue Sky Black Death is another one that shows up a lot.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So that whatever that type of music is, <laughs> no,
2: it's great. It's it's instrumental and really yeah. cool. So so the, another question is. If people want to get more Allie Brosh before the next one comes out, are you on Instagram or on anything like that?
1: I I am on Instagram very recently. I'm I'm figuring out how to use Instagram still. Um, But yeah, it's, oh my gosh, I have to actually look up what my Instagram handle is if you want to know. Uh,
2: But it is a way that people can sort of see some new stuff that you're doing and New thoughts and that sort of thing.
1: Yeah. It's um Allie underscore brosh. And I've been doing kind of a like um chronicle. It's it's been I, I don't know how to describe it. It's it's like a photo journal type chronicle on mm-hmm. Facebook. Cool. Um, it's it's been like a a thing that I wanted to do for my for my readers who like stuck with me through the that seven year dark period cool. where I wasn't really saying anything that people always ask where I was and what I was doing and I was, I was, noticing a lot of people talking about, you know, just in, in commentary on, um, on the book, just wondering like about more at the back story. Mm-hmm. And so I've been kind of doing a, a project that's a cobbled together, found document style.
2: Right. Um, Those are great.
1: A photo, journal, photo journaling thing about just you, the last seven years.
2: Do you have some, a project in the works now, or are you waiting until this sort of plays itself out a little bit more?
1: so, so n- nothing officially, uh, yet, but I, I'm always working on, you know, on projects. I love projects. <laughs> Good.
0: Um,
1: and so I, I actually have a pretty significant portion of, um, a third book done, uh, at this point. I, again, it's, it's hard to, hard to pinpoint timelines just because of how, like, things, things change, but it, uh, but I've been really enjoying working on that. It's uh, It seems like the best time to work on a. You know, the next book is right after, or like while you're finishing the, the one, that you just worked on. I, I started writing the the second book while I was finishing the first. Cool. So it's uh...
2: <laughs> Well, I can't wait, and all of us at books and books and independent bookstores all over the place, just can't wait for your book next book to come out. And we, you know, we're just. It's so so nice to to meet you so that I, I have a, a face and a smile in mind when I hand this book to someone and say, you must read this now. Go home and read it now. The book of Solutions and Other Problems it's by Ali Brosh. And Ali, it's been just really lovely having you on The Literary Life. Thank you so much.
1: Lovely, lovely talking to you too, Mitch.